Welcome to episode 68 of the Process Podcast. Sky's the limit. Welcome to episode 68 of the Process Podcast. Today we have Dr. Russell Lede on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lede. Thank you for having me, man. I'm uh, honored to be on here and uh, really excited to share my story with you all. Hey, we're excited to hear your story. Could you tell the listeners where you're from? Yeah, grew up, born and raised in Lake Charles, Louisiana, which is in Southwest Louisiana. Lake Charles. What was it like growing up in Lake Charles? It was the grind, man. You know, I, I say it was the grind because my mom was a single mother raising us. You know, mom Dukes was doing everything she needed to do, make sure it was possible for us. But in terms of the city, man, like it's a really small city, a lot of chemical plants. It's kind of segregated, bro. You got the areas that are heavily black populated, and then there's like the heavily white populated areas. Everybody just kind of stay where they are. When there's mixing, sometimes there are problems, you know, yeah. um, which is common in so many cities in America. So I don't think we're any different. So, so what was it growing up there? You know, you mentioned a single parent home. What was your journey like, you know, as an adolescent? Yeah, man. You know, I, I, so it's, it's kind of funny you asked that because I recently was in a therapy session. I had to regurgitate all this. And I kind of had forgotten some of it. But basically, you know, my mom and my dad, they weren't the best of friends. Even though my dad like lived close, it just sometimes made it tenuous. And of course, as a child, especially being a boy, like I want to be around my dad, I want to be around my brothers. But of course, you know, my mom was, she, she had her way of seeing what was the best way to raise me. And she had full custody, so. She, she chose when I could go over there, when I couldn't, uh, when I could see my brothers who I dearly love and my sister, you know, and when I couldn't. So me and my little sister um, were raised by my mom and my grandmother helped us out, helped my mom out a lot. But it was always tough, man. My mom was a certified nurse's aide. You know, obviously she wasn't making that much money. This is back in the 90s and early 2000s. And so, you know, she, she did the very best she could, bruh. You know, we, we lived in a, a rent house um, and oftentimes my mom would, you know, give the, the landlord the money she had, but she never had, she rarely had enough to pay the full rent. Um, you know, graciously, Owens and Associates, you know, always looked out for us and they didn't, you know, kick us out when my mom was a little short on the rent. And, you know, I look back on it and say, like, man, my, my mom really, she just, she was doing the best she could, bro. Like, I couldn't imagine being in my mom's position, you know, and, and, and having to do what she had to do, but it was just tough, man. You know, of course we had the nights with no water, no running water, no light sometimes, we lighting candles. It got to a point to where we were, you know, going behind the Sam's Club in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Um, after school, when my mom would get off work, me and my grandmother and my mom and my little sister um, to dig in a dumpster for food. Just trying to, trying to get by, man. You know, just yeah. trying to get by. Um, my moms and my aunties would 
pool together their food stamps, you know, to get enough food. It was tough, man. You know, it, ma it makes me very grateful for where I'm at now. So you come from a single parent home. How was school for you? Um, did you always know you wanted to uh, get a PhD? Uh, what did that journey take you? Nah, man, so it's kind of crazy. So I, I was always really good in school, man. My, my mom um, was, she worked at nursing homes. And so like she worked a lot and she wouldn't really, like only on Sundays she would have enough time to like take us to the library and like let us check out books. But what she did do, which I think is brilliant in hindsight was my mom worked at a nursing home and oftentimes at nursing homes, like the people, the residents that are there, they read a lot. And so like when they would finish reading a book, it would just sit there and collect dust. And so my mom would just like start taking these books and asking them like, is it okay if I bring this home to my son? And, and like, I would just like soak up books, right? It'd be like about random stuff, like the opus. Like it was just like random books, bro. Like I, mm -hmm. I you know, Carter G. Wishes, The Miseducation of a Negro. I, I remember my mom bringing that book home from some resident. It, it was like so, The Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. It's, it's so many books that come to my mind that my mom would just like, she just would like commandeer books from the residents and then just bring them home for me to read. I think by the time I graduated high school, I had read like 2,000 books. Easy. Wow. Um, I, I just like loved reading, bro. And, and, and actually school was rarely challenging. School was rarely challenging. I, I think not having internet at home, you know, and not having like, you know, writing utensils and tools and stuff like that made it difficult. But school was always easily comprehensible. Um, I, I could always comprehend what was going on in school. I could always understand what I could always keep track of what was going on in the classroom. I was always, you know, commonly thought of by my classmates as like, you know, just like this brilliant young child. But but what's crazy, the dichotomy with that is that with all that brilliance, I still didn't think I was capable of going to college. Yeah. Um, because my mom didn't go to college. My dad had went to college, but he just like dropped out after like one year. So I didn't really know anybody had gone to college. The only college degree I ever saw in my life was on a random chance. My girlfriend then, who's now been my wife for nearly uh, 15 years. Um, at the time, we went over to her uncle's house um, for a Christmas dinner before, I think like right, right before I left for the military. And uh, he, he uh, had one on the wall. And I remember pointing it out to my girlfriend then, wife now, and saying like, one day I want to have one of those, but I don't know when that'll be, because I don't even know how to do that. <laughs> my wife just like laughed at me. Um, and I didn't understand why she was laughing at me. In hindsight, it's like really obvious now, but you know, it, it was crazy. Like the main reason why I went to the military was because one, like I didn't even know how to apply to college. My mom didn't know how to apply to college. And, and so our whole mindset was like, you can't go to college. <laughs> you only, like only certain people can go to college and you don't look like them. So I didn't know, you know, I remember when I was in the Navy, when I was deciding on whether or not to go to college, I remember asking people like, do you think I'm smart enough to go to college? And it's crazy because like, bro, like I could tell you so many instances where in hindsight, it was like, bro, like you were beyond prepared for college. Like, yeah. I was just like a layup. And college genuinely was a layup. It wasn't difficult. So when you went to the Navy, um, how long did you stay in the Navy? You know, how was that experience? And where did you end up going to college uh, once you got out of the Navy? How was that transition? Yeah, man, so so um, as I was graduating in high school, um, my, my as, as a matter of fact, this will, this will tell you how good I was in, in high school. When I got to my senior year in high school, I was pretty much ready to graduate from high school. Somehow, like, the school wouldn't let me graduate, so they sent me to, like, this, like, community college program or something like that to, like, take some classes. Um, and even then, it still didn't dawn on me that I was capable of going to college. But I met this girl. She became my wife later on, whatever. Um, between that time, uh, the Navy was the only option that seemed like it made sense. So my, my mom helped me to apply to the military. I got in. And then my first duty station was in Washington, D.C at the ceremonial guard. So the ceremonial guard is like the people that you see on TV, like standing there for hours when the president is giving off the plane or for some, 
you know, random ceremony, you'll see like heads of state walking around and you got like these military people standing there looking like statues. That's what a ceremony of guardsmen is, or the people who bury people in that in Arlington National Cemetery. And so I did that for two years. Um, and that was my first exposure to real success. So, you know, you, you get to like meet all these super successful people in Washington, DC. And the first question I would always ask them is like, yo, like, how do you become successful? Cause like all y'all like got it. Like, how do y'all do this? Mm-hmm. And I remember this guy, Master Chief Carolina, pulling me to the side and saying, listen, young man, don't ask for permission. You ask for forgiveness. He was like, <laughs> if you want to do it, go do it. He was like, just go do it. He was like, what you waiting on somebody to tell you it's okay? He was like, go do it. And so I kind of just, that, that just like started the wheels turning, you know, and then after my two years in Washington, D.C., I got relocated to training for cryptology intelligence in Pensacola, Florida. And then that was for about six months. So at this point, we like halfway through 2007. So I joined in 2004. Now we're at midway, like June, July 2007. I got, after I finished that training, I got put aboard a ship, the USS John L. Hall, which is a frigate, a small boy frigate. And basically we just like deployed in and out, in and out, in and out. And I did that for about two and a half years and that put me at five years after duty time so by this time we looking at like june or july 2009 mm-hmm. and prior to that like maybe like may or something like that my wife and i are having this conversation because she like we want to have a family but you're deploying all the time mm-hmm. like why don't you consider going to college and i was like yo i'm not even smart enough she was like you crazy <laughs> like you out of your mind um and i'll never forget this and i always tell this story when i'm on a podcast i was on watch in the middle of the night and i was on watch with this guy named instant richard engel he was from uh california um from la and um richard engel was like a big brother to me this white dude who was in there he was he went to the naval academy but he was like so cool but he just had like a keen interest in me. He was like, "Well, you got something special about you. I don't know what it is, but he would always tell me that. Nevertheless, um, he and I were on watch overnight. I remember asking him on watch, cause you know, you just sit there and talk and just kind of pass the time. And he was like, yo, I was like, yo, you think I'm smart enough to go to college? And he laughed at me. And he was like, yo, when you go to college, he was like, bro, you gonna run circles around people. He was like, <laughs> He was like, you don't even know. He was like, how do you not know this? Like, how do you not know how smart you are? And I was like, bro, no, I ain't never been around. I ain't never been able to compare myself to anyone. You know, I don't, I don't know anybody who's been to college. Yeah. And he started like showing me some college material and stuff like that. And, you know, I was like, oh, I know all this. Like, you know, I this is easy. And he was like, yeah. I know. He was like, I know. So nevertheless, five years in, um, my wife convinced me to go to college. She helped me to apply to Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I'll tell you how crazy my schedule was once I did that. So I got off active duty, so the paycheck stopped, bro. Right, when you're in the military, you're getting paid. When you get out, you gotta figure out how you're gonna get paid. Mm-hmm. So my wife and I bought a house in Baton Rouge. So now we're paying for a house. I'm in undergrad at Southern University. I'm a security guard at a hospital. And I'm still in the United States Navy Reserves back in Florida. Wow. So I'm driving back and forth from Baton Rouge, Louisiana to Pensacola, Florida. That's almost a six hour drive on Friday evenings to make it there for Saturday morning. So my normal schedule was, let's say it's Monday morning. It's Monday morning, I wake up at five, I work out a little bit. Um, I get to school by eight. And if I got to drop my daughters off, I drop them off. I go to school by eight. I go to school from eight to 3.15. I get off, throw on my security guard uniform work from 3.45 to midnight, and then go home, study, wake up, do it again. Well, if it's a weekend when I got to go to the reserves on that Friday, after I get off from being a security guard at midnight, then I hop in my car and I just drive straight to Florida and get there by about 6.15 when we got to be to work by seven. So I throw on my military uniform from the security guard uniform and then just work from seven to four for the military, sleep overnight on that Saturday night, Sunday morning, wake up, go to the military again, get off at four in the afternoon, and then drive back to Baton Rouge to be back to school on Monday morning. Wow. Yeah, so I was grinding, <laughs> bro. Um, and all this time I was still working full time as a security guard at the hospital, bro. 
for one, I just want to know how did you get in the in the mold to be able to juggle all those had it at, at the same time. You know what I mean? Like, how did you pre prepare yourself for that? Or was it just, you know, this is what I need to do and, and I just got to do it, you know what I mean? Was it just like, you flip the switch on cold turkey kind of thing? Man, I, I think it was just like, it was out of necessity, bro. Yeah. It was like, what's the other, like, what's the alternative? Yeah. My kids got to eat, so I got to work, right? My kids got to eat, so I got to work. Um, I was making money by doing the reserves. So even if it was just a little bit, it's like maybe three, four hundred dollars, but that's better than nothing every month, you know. Um, and then on top of that, like I had to go to school because like, that's the whole reason why I got out the Navy. You know, the, the part about being a security guard, it was like it's a job, bro. Like I, I that was literally the only job I applied for. It's the only job I applied for when I got out the military. Yeah. And it was, you know, it wasn't that hard, like you know, you just a security guard at a hospital. But being a security guard at that hospital changed my life, right? I don't think if I don't think I'd be who I am today, where I am today, if I wasn't a security guard at the hospital. Here's what I say that. When I was a security guard at the hospital, my intentions while I was at Southern University was to be a social worker. Because I grew up on food stamps. And the social workers was the only people who was coming through with the food stamps. I mean, this was back when we were getting paper food stamps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like way back in the gap. So, you know, I was like, yo, I'm going back to my hood. I'm going to be a hood hero and we're going to make this thing work for my yeah. neighborhood. So that's what I thought I'd be. And, and I really got this idea of majoring in chemistry and biology when I was sitting in a chemistry class and I like had memorized the entire periodic chart, uh, periodic element chart. And the professor pulled me to the side and was like, we need social workers, but I think you're smart enough to be a scientist. In my head, I'm like, yo, black people don't become scientists. And she like, nah, <laughs> she like, nah, you got it. Like you got what it takes. She put me in touch with a scientist and he helped me to switch over to chemistry and biology. And then the hospital piece was, I was seeing all these doctors walking around with these white coats and I was like, yo, I'm starting to understand this chemistry and biology stuff. This is like the basis of how the human body works. So like maybe becoming a doctor is a possibility. And I started asking doctors like, yo, can I shadow you? Can I shadow you? Can I shadow you? They was like laughing at me, bro. They're like mm -hmm. laughing at me. They're <laughs> like, that's kind of the theme of my life. Like people have been laughing for a long time. <laughs> some of it good, some of it bad, whatever. But um, one guy, he gave me a shot, man. I was in this in the emergency room. He was trying to get to the operating room. He was a surgeon, and um, he was coming through the ER, which is kind of weird because you can usually just go through the front. But you know, he uh, I, I told my boss like, look, I'll escort him. And as I was escorting him, I looked down at his coat and I was like, Yo, that's a surgeon. I had asked so many doctors before him, Is it okay if I shadow you? And they laughed at me. It was like, Hell no, security guards don't become doctors. <laughs> and. <clears throat> This guy was like, hey, bro, like, yeah, you can shadow me. I was like, what? He gave me his phone number and everything. Wow. I texted him that same night. I ended up shadowing him the next day, bro. Wow. The next day. And then we pull up in the OR, me and him, Dr. Patrick Garkenstein, we pull up in the OR because he was a resident. Mm -hmm. Guess who the main surgeon was? This guy named Dr. Peter Boston, a black oncology surgeon, bro. Wow. Yeah, it was like the seal the deal moment. I was like, oh, my. I was going to ask you, what did you learn from each piece of the puzzle during that time? Like, what did you learn from being in college? What did you learn from being at a hospital? What did you learn from taking that road trip? But as I listen to you connect the dots, I want to ask, what does it mean to allow God to manifest what he has for you in your life? You know what I'm saying? When you think you're doing these things haphazardly, but they're all connected. You know what I'm saying? Wow. Yeah. How did that reveal itself to you? Yeah, man. It, it, I think you get to a point to where the story is so crazy, so you just let go of the wheel. Yeah. Like my story's so crazy, so like I just let go of the wheel. My wife let go of the wheel. <laughs> we was like, all right, God, whatever you send us, whatever you send us to do, it's gonna work out. So at this point, it's like, you know, we we playing poker with house money. Yeah, but not only that. Like what I'm hearing is that, because I've, I've heard so many stories, and what you what you start to hear the theme is that 
for, for example, you have athletes. You know, I always played basketball, played basketball since I was five. And I was just kind of waiting for God to manifest that dream for me. You know what I mean? That right. either like collegiate ball or I didn't make it, I got injured. And, and through my recovery, this is what I've learned and this is what I can share with people. But your story is that what I'm hearing is from a child, you always ask, can I do it? Can I do it? Not only did God manifest it, but he had to do it in such a way that showed you in your face, right 3D, that if you want to do it, here it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah, if it's, and if you're willing to go through this, I got something better for you on the other end. And it's beautiful, man. It's beautiful. What were you about to say? Yeah, bro. I, I think at, at every stage, right? Like it's always been, God is always like, watch me level up. Yeah. He like, if you thought what you did already was big, watch this next thing I'm about to do. So like, for instance, I was convinced that when I finished my undergrad degrees in chemistry and biology, that I was going straight to medical school. Yeah. You couldn't tell me otherwise. I walked around campus like, yo, I'm about to become a doctor. And I took the MCAT to get into medical school and I didn't do well. And I remember the day my wife opened the the um, scores. Um, I don't remember what I got, but I remember laying on this couch in our living room of that house that we had bought in that and we was crying. And my wife walked up to me and she was laughing at me, bro. She was laughing at me while I was crying. Another laughing moment, right? My wife is just sitting there laughing at me. And I was like, you know, with all these tears and snot running down my face because I'm so disappointed at how bad I did. And she like, look at you. Look where your faith is. She's like, look, look where your faith is. She's like, if God said that he gonna do it, he gonna do it. <laughs> like, it ain't no, it ain't no, like, oh, I, he might, he might not. No, he gonna do it. And she was like, no matter what those test scores say, those test scores don't even determine what God, like, God don't run by those rules. He was like, those are those rules don't apply. And so she ended up going to Joe's Crab Shack. That was like our Joe Crab Shack moment, bro. She left. Her and my youngest daughter, I mean, her and my oldest daughter, who was like two at the time, they got in the car, they went celebrate. She was like, because this, she was like, whatever this is, God gonna work it out at five good. And he, she was right. I took the MCAT only. I didn't take a GRE to get, in, to get my PhD. I only took the medical college admissions test to get my PhD. So I only applied to one, I applied to a bunch of MD PhD programs. I got interviews at a couple of them, like five or six of them. And I didn't get any, any of them. I got waitlisted at a couple of them, but I didn't get any, any of them. Mm -hmm. And then, um, but I, I got an acceptance to go and get my PhD at NYU School of Medicine. Whoa. And, um, you know, obviously we decided to move to New York. Um, and I remember my wife crying as we were leaving Baton Rouge because she was like, every new step that God had for us, it's more challenging. It's more rewarding, but it's more challenging. Mm -hmm. and, and that really speaks to, to much is given, much is required, yeah. right? So like the, 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 the blessings that came with going to New York and getting my PhD in NYU and being recognized by the Ford Foundation and the National Institutes of Health, Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and then having my work published in Nature. Like, yes, all that stuff came, but it was painful. Because like my wife and I were moving so far away from home again, we ain't gonna have no support system. We got a baby and it's just us. When we pulled up to Brooklyn, we were there in a U-Haul, like a 26 foot U-Haul with our vault in the back of it. And my wife wasn't even willing to get out of the car to drive the car. She was like, I'm not driving in New York. And she cried in that car. She was like, I'm not driving out here. You're not about to get me to drive in New York. That's how scared she was. You know, and, and, and so when I think about all these amazing moments we've had, all these highs, I think about the start of those highs. Like when we decided to to leave the military, it was so painful. Yet the step God took us through to get us to to New York was worth it. That four year span at Southern was worth it because it changed my trajectory. Obviously I went to NYU and got my PhD. To the point I got my PhD, bro, I never paid for a dollar on my tuition. That's the other thing that I always forget to talk about. Uh, <laughs> bro, I've, the only education I have ever paid for was my MBA. I didn't even pay for medical school. 
my wife and I in New York, we pull up in New York, we pull up in Brooklyn. We get a phone call on our way because we drove up. So we drove through the mountains and everything from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Brooklyn, New York. On a 26 foot U-Haul and a a little small Volvo S40 on the back of it. And so uh, when we pulled up in Brooklyn, actually before we pulled up in Brooklyn, I think we were in like West Virginia or something like that, we get a phone call. So in New York, um, in order for you to get an apartment, you got to be able to show like two and a half times your rent. No, yeah, two and a half times your yearly rent. Mm-hmm. So like, let's say for instance, your rent is $10,000, you got to be able to show that you make $25,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like tough when you, you know, you start making, you know, you know, when you start to think about um, how much it costs to rent in New York, because it's expensive. So we had got her uncle who has some money set aside um, to be our guarantor, which is basically someone who is like, who has some money who says like, look, if they don't pay, I can pay it for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we got the apartment, we didn't know like Brooklyn, we didn't know Brooklyn had like sections here and there. And so we got a call um, from them saying like, all right, so your apartment is ready. Yo, when we pulled up in Brooklyn, the people saw us and they was like, y'all can't stay in this neighborhood. I'm not even gonna tell you what kind of neighborhood it was, just to save myself the publicity later on. But nevertheless, yeah. that neighborhood didn't want us living in it. And so now my wife and I are homeless. We don't have nowhere to stay. We don't have nowhere to stay. We just pulled up in New York. I'm supposed to start my PhD on Monday. It's like a Friday and I'm trying to figure it out. And so we, you know, look around, look around, look around, look around, look around, look around. And then we finally found a spot, a three bedroom in um, in Jersey City, New Jersey. Now this is this is how amazing God is. We got that three bedroom, we didn't need a three bedroom. It's just my wife and I and, my, and a baby who was pretty much staying in the room with us. So <clears throat> my undergrad professor, his best friend had two daughters who had moved up to New York to do some internship in PR work. Mm-hmm. And they needed a place to stay. And my undergrad PI, my undergrad professor called me and was like, yo, I know you just moved up to New York. Like, do you think these girls could just stay with you for a little while? Like, I'm like, bro, I don't even know who these people are. Like, <laughs> you wowing right now. Yo, two girls end up moving in with us. And when we got that apartment, when we got that house before they moved in, it was $1,800 a month. We can honestly only afford to pay $1,300 a month in rent. So when they moved in, their dad agreed to pay us $500 a month for the two of them to stay in our house. Working out. That's the... <laughs> bro, I can't even make this up, dog. Like, I cannot make this up, right? Like, like that's exactly how it worked out. And we we did that for about a year. Um, and they they helped us because, like, obviously, I'm just you know how it is with a PhD. You're trying to figure out how to get your feet wet and this and that. Yeah. You need some help, and so they helped us with the kids, um, with the kid at the time. And then um, throughout my PhD, bro, like my work got recognized and funded by the National Institutes of Health, by the Ford Foundation, and then the big one was the Howard Hughes Medical Institute because that's like the creme de la creme. Yeah. It's like it's like winning a championship, bro. It's like winning an NBA championship, dog, to get, to get funded by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Wow. It's like it's like being it's like being a designer in the Versace house or something. Wow. <laughs> that's essentially what it's equivalent to. This is a little young black dude from, from HBCU. <laughs> it's like pulling up. You know what I'm saying? Like, ain't teaching my money. It's crazy. I got two questions for you. Yeah. The first question is, you know, what was it like transitioning from Southern University to NYU? Um, and the second question is, when did you realize, when did it hit you, you know, from going from second guessing yourself, don't know if you good enough for college to now, you know, academic success? You know, what were those two transitions like for you? Yeah, to answer your first question, bro, it took a little while, bro. It was a lot of adjustments. Yeah. Obviously, the environment is very different. Um, the people are very different. 
Um, and I had some like confidence, questionable moments mm-hmm. when I was like, I was thriving at Southern, but like this is a whole different. I remember this professor pulling me to his office and saying, you need to be able to write in our vernacular, in the scientific vernacular. <laughs> and I walked out of there basically saying like, basically what he's saying is you dumb as hell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and in my mind, I'm like, bro, I know I'm not dumb, but it's a whole different switch up. You know, it's a switch up to, to what the expectation is. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's like you said, but new levels, new devils, but also new levels, new expectations. Yeah. You know, so uh, that that was a little bit of a challenge. And then the epiphany moment for me was, so my PhD, I, I finished my PhD in four and a half years, which is ridiculously fast. But as I was finishing my PhD, I decided after talking to my PIs that um, I would go to medical school. And I interviewed at the school, I'm not gonna name the school, but I interviewed at the school and no lie, this actually happened there. So I pulled up to the professor's office for medical for this medical school interview. Mm-hmm. And this is like a prestigious university. Like the, you know, the Ivy League. Um, and I pulled up to his office. He was interviewing someone else. He he hurried up the interview with them. <laughs> he was so excited to sit down and talk to me. And then he told me to take my coat off. And I, his his office had like a vestibule before you would walk into his actual office. Mm-hmm. And we were standing in the vestibule and he was like, do you want some water? Do you want some coffee? And I'm thinking in my head like, bro, this is the nicest interview person I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> you know? And yeah. then he was like, hey, let's take a walk down the hallway. I'm like, bro, I'm here for an interview. I'm like, where are we going? He like, we about to go to the pool. I'm like, I'm like, bro, hold on. Funny stuff? Nah, this ain't the time for that. And he was like, nah, bro, I just want to see if you can walk on water. Wow. Yeah. He was like, he was like, yo. He was like, I have he's like, I've been at this for almost 40 years. And I have never seen anyone's application like this. Ever. <laughs> so so I walked out of there and I was like, hold on. So we sat down and he was like, what do we need to do to get you to come out of institution? I'm like, hold on. <laughs> I'm like, I'm supposed to be interviewing with you, bro. <laughs> and you sitting here asking me, what do I want to come here? And uh, I remember walking out of there and getting on the train to go back, or the bus to go back to NYU to go do my research in the lab after the interview because it was, mm-hmm. it was like, you know, and um, I was on the bus and I was listening to uh the sky's the limit, the notorious B.I.G. and Fabulous. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yo, the sky really is the limit right now. <laughs> I was like, yo, the sky's the limit, bro. I was like, this is wild. You know, and, and it just dawned on me, bro. I was like, oh, I got something to offer to this world. Yeah. I was yeah. like, I got something to offer to the world. Young black dude from Lake Charles, Louisiana. And I'm finally able to say like, yo, you can have some self-confidence in yourself, bro. You worth something. I could tell myself, you are worth something now. I was probably worth something a long time ago. Not probably, I was worth something a long time ago. Yeah. But there was some validation in that moment of you asking me, what do I want? Because <laughs> how often do they sit us down and say, black man, what do you want? Yeah. Wow. The, the world is yours. What do you want? Tell us what you want. Whatever you want. You, your wife want a job. You need an apartment. <laughs> you wow. need a bus ticket. Your kids <laughs> need some childcare. We got you. Wow. What did you end up? So what was your decision? I ended up coming back to Louisiana for a whole different reason. Mm-hmm. So I could have stayed in New York, or I could have came to Louisiana. The reason why I ended up deciding to come to Louisiana. One, so during my last year of my PhD, my wife was pregnant with our second child. Mm-hmm. And um, I had interviewed at Tulane. Tulane had already accepted me. And this other school that I just, you know, was telling their story about had ex- they hadn't, they hadn't let me know that they had accepted me yet. But I was pretty confident that I would get in. So that was really the two places that I was picking in between. But Tulane must have knew the day my daughter was gonna be born, bro. My daughter was born on February 20th, 2018 at 9.43 in the morning. 
Eastern Standard Time. At 10.30, my wife and I and our newborn are sitting in the recovery room from, from her giving birth, 10.30 on the dot. Um, actually, I think it was 10.46, my bad. So maybe like 45 minutes later, I get this email from Tulane. I still have this email. It says, we just want to let you know that we have a full ride for tuition waiting for you at Tulane. <laughs> Same day my daughter was born, less than 45 minutes later. Wow. My wife and I was already on the teeter-totter of whether or not we needed to go home because we just had a newborn. It's going to be hard for us to maintain a newborn. And at the time, I think like a seven-year-old in New York. It's just crazy. And I looked at my wife. She was exhausted. Obviously, she just gave birth. And she was like, we going home. <laughs> she was like, we going home, man. I remember making an Instagram post about that and just thinking in my head, like, God, how can you, how can, how is this possible? You know what I'm saying? Like, how, 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 how is this a thing? Um, so that's why we decided to come to Louisiana. Um, also, my wife wanted to be home. You know, her, her grandparents were getting older um, and her parents were getting older. Um, and so she wanted to come closer to home. And that's why we decided to come to Tulane University School of Medicine, bro. And I ended up in the MD, MBA program. Um, and the MBA is literally the only piece of education I've ever had to pay for. Wow. wow. So how, how does it feel, you know, going from you know, security guard at a hospital, you know, shadowing surgeons to now in med school as a med student? You know, how is that full circle? What was that transition like, man? Bro, listen. So I know you noticed know already, but for the podcast listening. Y'all know I told y'all early on in this podcast that I was at that hospital as a security guard. Yeah. So summer 2020, with all this stuff going on, July 2020, I post this YouTube video of my response. I got a letter in like June, an email in June saying that, so I'm in third year right now, right? In, in third year of medical school, you do these rotations at, in different specialties. So I did surgery and then pediatrics and then neurology, psychiatry, and then OB-GYN. I just did internal medicine, and now right now I'm on family medicine. And so you do this at different hospitals. But when I did surgery first, I did the first half of my surgery rotation, which is six weeks long, at the exact same hospital I was a security guard at. Wow. Bro, the morning of my first day on that rotation was July 8th, 2020. I woke up at like four o'clock in the morning because I couldn't sleep. I was nervous, I was excited, and then it just I just let it all out because I knew how much work I had put in, how faithful God had been for so long. Yeah. And I just cried and cried, cried and cried. I was so grateful, bruh. So when I finally gathered myself enough to not cry for like a solid six minute period, <laughs> um, I recorded this video of like my feelings. Cause I like couldn't contain myself. And I'm not even the type of person to go hop on the live, like yeah. You know, I'm just not, you know, I'm just like more of like a static person. I don't, you know, the, the, the camera is, I'm not necessarily shy at the camera, but it's just not my thing. But, but nevertheless, I recorded those feelings, but, and I ain't know like everybody else is going to resonate with it. Um, Teen Vogue reached out to me and was like, yo, would you mind just capturing your story of you returning to the hospital where you used to be a security guard, but this time you got a white coat on. And bro, it was, it was everything, dog. When I tell you it was everything, but it was like, it was like a dream come true. I couldn't even believe it, but I was like, God, how? All the hell I've been through, how is this possible? Um, and it was just like, I cried and I cried and I cried and I cried um, because I was just like, God, you are so faithful. Um, and it was just amazing. It was such an amazing feeling, bro. Like it was just, it was remarkable, bro. But wow. yeah, so I, I came back. I did my rotation there, and then, uh, you know, Good Morning America reached out. NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt reached out. Um, Steve Harvey reached out. <laughs> the doctors reached out. Doctor Oz reached out. Everybody reached out, and I was like, dang, I guess. I guess my life story is on Front Street now. Yeah. 
Um, and it's kind of interesting now because it's literally on front street now. Like I think I'm on, I'm on TV almost every month. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, re- regurgitating this life story and a lot of people resonate with it. Um, and, and you know, when I sit back and think about it, it makes sense. I, I think about my favorite scripture, man. I, I've said it so many times on the podcast, but it's um, everything that has happened to me has happened to advance the gospel. You know, mm-hmm. it's just one of those things in your story is that you go from not knowing if if it's something for you to God showing you that it is, and 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 doing it time and time and time again to a point where when people ask you what is it, what happened, like. What did you do? All you can say, you know, is it's God. It ain't that simple. You know what I mean? It's a God thing. Like, <laughs> and, and you know, some people are like, no, 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 no. It gotta be more than that. And you're like, nah, it, it really ain't. Like, I can't explain it to you, but it's a God thing. Like, you know, um, it's like seriously a God thing. You wow. know, it's it's crazy, bro. It is my my next question what I wanted to you talked about representation. Um kind of indirectly when you're talking about the surgeon that you saw that was an African-American male. I want to ask, you know, what was the the motivation for the 15 white coats mm. um, and how did that come about? Yeah, bro. So, uh, you know, I told you I went to an HBCU. Yeah. My best friend, who's also went to an HBCU, he and I were in the same lab. Um, we were getting our PhD in the same lab. Two mm-hmm. black dudes in the same lab went to HBCU at NYU School of Medicine, getting our PhDs, and both of us Howard Hughes Medical Institute funded. Both of us. Wow. You can't tell our lab nothing. Dog. <laughs> lab in the world like this. So you know we bumping Nipsey, we bumping Boosie, we bumping yeah. Kurt Franklin. You know what I'm saying? We out here. Um, but that was dope because like that was us, you know. Um, but nevertheless, he came down to visit me here in New Orleans in the summer of 2019 when he came to visit me um we had made a decision that we would go to the Whitney plantation um and I told my daughter that she could come along with us and it's like 45 minutes outside of New Orleans and so when we were on our ride back from the plantation back to New Orleans my daughter stopped us about 15 minutes into that ride returning and she was like dad um I was like Malia what's up I'm in the middle of a conversation with Uncle Phil like what's up yeah (laughs) He was like, nah, I got to tell you something. You know, at this time, she's eight years old, and I'm just like, what's up? She was like, uh, I finally understand what it means, like, why it's so important to be a black doctor in America. And I was like, okay, look, tell me what you're talking about, Willis. <laughs> and she was like, nah, think about it. She was like, we just left a plantation. There was a time when black people were enslaved. Like, they were nothing more than just, like, property. They couldn't be lawyers, doctors, accountants, firefighters. They couldn't be anything other than property. She was like, now I'm riding the car with two black doctors. (laughs) She was like, that's a long way for us to come. And uh, after I picked up my jaw off the ground, yeah, you know, I looked over at Phil and I was like, bro, I got this idea. I was like, I think we can show the whole world how far black people have come. I came back to to Tulane in New Orleans. I met up with some of my classmates. I was like, y'all, I got this idea. I think it's gonna be iconic. Um, I said, like, let's go take this photo in our white coats. We're all black on. Yeah. I was like, in front of the enslaved quarter. And then we're gonna show the world how far we've come. And I was like, these photos are gonna be iconic. And it's like, ah, oh, yeah, that's a really dope idea. Blah, 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 blah. I was like, okay. So we did it. 14 people besides me showed up. We took those photos, they went viral. And when they went viral, the next thing we did was said to ourselves like, well, our ancestors wouldn't want us to get clout out of this. Yeah. <laughs> Why yeah. don't we do something positive out of it? So we decided to start a company at the time, which is now um, about to be a nonprofit, um, uh, 501c3, that basically raises money to provide scholarships to minority medical school applicants to help them with the process to get into medical school. But we also take the photo and put it in classrooms and learning centers all over the world for free. So we don't take not $1 from any of the money that we raise. Not $1, none of us get paid, we all volunteer. 
And every last dollar goes to putting that photo in classrooms for free. So it's in Zimbabwe, it's in Madagascar, it's in Ghana, it's in South Africa, it's in China, it's in India, it's in Europe, um, it's in Canada, it's in Australia, <laughs> it's in Hawaii, it's in New Zealand, and it, of course it's all over the US, South America, Central America, it's everywhere for free. Yeah. So anybody listening, if you're a teacher or you have a community center, you could go on the 15whitecoast.org and go to our uh, school sign up, school poster sign up uh, tab and sign up for a poster for free. And we will send it to you for free. That's major, man. So where, where are you in your process right now? What, what phase are you in medical school? Yeah, so I'm in my last rotation of third year, um, which basically means that after this rotation, I'll be a fourth year medical student. Fourth year is your last year of medical school. This means that now it's time for me to start thinking about where I want, where I want to do residency and what I want to do residency in. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, I think right now that's a child psychiatry. So basically what I want to do is I want to increase accessibility for mental health, for minorities, mm -hmm. for marginalized communities. Um, and the first step in me doing so is becoming a board certified a board certified psychiatrist and child psychiatrist uh i want to know you know looking back over your life thus far um what advice would you give your younger self i would tell my younger self that it's going to be all right yeah just like kendrick lamar said it's going to be all right god got you but don't don't shy away from the things that god has deposited into you yeah. like i'm a very extroverted positive-minded, like really strong opinionated person. I have to embrace that. I can't be like, oh, maybe people don't like that. So I need to shy away from that. Nah, that's just the way God made me. Yeah. I need to be all right with that. And I need to be whole. So that's what I would tell my younger self is it's going to be all right. This podcast is called The Process Podcast. Mm -hmm. um, I want to know what trust in the process means to you. Yeah, man, trusting the process is having confidence in your abilities. I think the one trait that I can consistently rely on is having confidence in what I'm capable of doing. Oftentimes we question what we're capable of doing. Early on, as I told you on the podcast, I questioned what I was capable of doing. Um, and I think during those times, God probably had to push, nudge, and carry me more um, in that area because I wasn't as strong as I am now and know as much about myself as I do now. But trusting and knowing what I'm capable of doing, my abilities is absolutely critical. Um, and it could be the difference maker between where you want to be and where you are. Mm -hmm. So I want to, you know, thank you for joining us, man, and, and, and sharing your story. It, it has so many levels to it, but I think the theme is that you have to trust the process and trust that, you know, your journey is aligned with what God has manifested in your life. Yeah. Um, but I want to know, do you have any lasting words that you want to leave with the listeners? Yeah, man, you know, as, as, as amazing as my journey sounds and is, I think everybody who's listening has a journey that's just as amazing. And what that means is, is that you have to be true to your story. Your story is not like anyone else's story. It's not supposed to be, and it never will be. Um, so embrace the journey that you have to take. I took a very circuitous route to get to where I'm at. I'm very grateful for the route that I've taken. It was very painful and arduous, but also a blessing that I will never forget, obviously, um, and that I'll tell at the mountaintops. And everyone who's listening has a story that's just as compelling and just as authentic. And I think the authenticity of telling your story, the way that you experienced it, is so powerful. Because what it also helps anyone who's listening to understand is, is that what was going through your mind as you were going through this, not what everyone else was seeing, but you're the subject, right? Like you're the talent. So what were you thinking? And how are you perceiving the world that you are moving through? Where can the listeners, you know, find you if they want to 
tap into the, the things that you have going on or if they just want to give you feedback on this this dope episode yeah you can find me on instagram twitter and facebook at d-r-r-u-s-s-e-l-l-l-e-d-e-t that's at dr russell today for the work that i'm doing with the 15 white coats you can find us on instagram twitter and facebook at the that's t-h-e one five white coats um, or you can go to our website the15whitecoats.org um, if you're interested in helping us out or getting a piece of inspiration for your children um, to post up in their house and then there's this newest project that we've had where basically me and another doctor are providing comedic relief but also medical education it's called the real docs uh, t-h-e-r-e-e-l docs and basically we just make reels about really important information like last month was this past month was American Heart Month. And so we did a lot of stuff around cardiovascular um, health. And uh, you can find us on TikTok and Instagram. This episode was brought to you by Overcome Achieve Clothing. Allow what you have overcome to fuel the flame of persistence as you face and conquer your next challenge. Wear your truth, overcome. I think the main thing for me was trying to decide on who am I and like what I want to be and how I want to be remembered. Like that was my thing. You know, oftentimes I think about like my legacy and like the mark that I want to leave, not only on the industry, but the effect that I want to leave on people. Being a whole human being, going through my obstacles, going through the things that I'm going through and not to only broadcast these things, but for it to inspire change.